So God bless all of you who weathered the apocalyptic snow conditions. And that was all the people from north of the Mason-Dixon line that just laughed at us. Isn't it amazing how we handle this? A dusting of snow and there's no eggs, bread, or milk left in the store in two hours. And um, I remember I was preaching in Duluth, Minnesota one time and it was 40 below wind chill, 15 below normal, blizzard just blowing sideways. and. I told the pastor, I said, so I, I suppose you're going to cancel the service tonight. And he looked at me so strange. By the time we got there, you know, the 88-year-old the women were like sliding into the parking lot sideways into their space and getting out like it was no big deal. But God bless you for getting out. A lot of our folks are snowed in. <laughs> but the spiritual giants are here, right? So the Christian church essentially... There are many things that distinguish us from other religions, just like they have distinctives that distinguish them from us. But the Christian church revolves around three or four, as some would consider it, but I would say three linchpin events. Um, the first being the birth of Jesus. And of course, we concern ourselves with creations and things that happened before the birth of Jesus. But in terms of distinctives, why we call ourselves Christ followers, the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. The fourth, of course, would be the life of Jesus. But a lot of people would say the birth and the, and the death and the resurrection and the life encompasses all of that because he was living in and through those events and between those events. As a Christian community, we have built a calendar to help symbolically remind us of important things. Calendars can be sacramental. That's why we have birthdays and anniversaries. We don't love one another more on the anniversary than the rest of the year. As a matter of fact, the point of the anniversary is the rest of the year. It's to bring us back into focus and remind us that this love is not to be celebrated annually, it's to be celebrated daily, hourly. And in order to bring us back, sometimes we have to focus and we have to pull out presents and flowers and songs, uh, sacramental calendars. The church picked up on this early on in its existence and as a Christian congregation we move through a, a, bio, a spiritual biorhythm of sorts through the year. In a few weeks we're going to be beginning the season of Lent. That's the 40 days minus Sundays, the 47 including Sundays, that lead up to Easter. And as a church, for some 16, 1700 years, we have certain scriptures that we focus on because we don't want to just skip up to Easter, the day of Easter, and begin reflecting. We, we want to set our mind and set our jaw, set our palate for that day. So we have this season that we move through, leading us up to the Passion Week of the Lord. We've just moved through the season of Advent, right? The four Sundays and the days between them that lead up to uh, Christmas Day. So we just celebrated the season of Advent where we focused on the coming of Christ to the earth and what that meant. And uh, the early church really celebrated Advent as not only a celebration of Christ's first coming, but um, celebration may be the wrong word, but an embrace of the idea of longing and desire for Christ to yet come. 
the earliest church and actually the Christian church that I grew up in really focused on the idea of Jesus coming in a very literal sense. Um, there was going to be a horse and a trumpet and, and a real cataclysmic event. And who knows? It may happen that way. That's not the way that I think it will happen. But um, I, I love what John said. We, we don't know yet how things are going to wrap up. We don't know how all of that um, is going to work out. What we do believe in is the coming kingdom. And if that is a long evolutionary grinding transformation or a cataclysmic eruptive moment that translates the world. The early church believed in that eruptive moment. And I grew up believing in that eruptive moment and my ideas have shifted now, but all of that speculation. The ultimate end is we, we believe in the coming of Christ into the world. And so we just celebrated that in the season of Advent. Located between these two big linchpins, Advent, Christmas, um, Lent, Easter, is a, is a season of ordinary time, a small season of ordinary time, but there's another specific season, and I love ordinary time. We have a couple of seasons of ordinary time through the year. As a matter of fact, the bulk of the calendar is ordinary time, and that reminds us it's not just in high moments that we meet God. It's in the ordinary spaces of life that we also meet God. But there's this little season that probably is one of the more obscure seasons in the church's calendars, and it's called Epiphany. The season of Epiphany essentially encompasses, let's see, it encompasses the 12 days of Christmas, actually the 12 days following January, or December 25th. So uh, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. So today's the 8th. So Friday was actually Epiphany. The 12th day after Christmas. Now, there are a lot of variations of this celebration in, in regards to the calendar and practice, whether you're Eastern Orthodox or you're Coptic or you're uh, Roman Catholic or you're Protestant, Western Protestant. But all of them hold essentially the same idea and try to make the same point. And it's what I want to share with you this morning because I think it's a very incredibly relevant um, idea, thought, um, spiritual reflection for us to uh, give time to as a church still yet today. Uh, the English word epiphany, most of you know the way we use the word, but the English word epiphany is one of those transliterated words. And the difference between transliteration and translation is translation is word for word. Transliteration is letter for letter. You know how some words transfer from one language to the other and we just literally take our B and replace their B with our letter. And there, there are words that just kind of transfer through Latin, through Greek, into English. And we, we talk about those words being anglicized and uh, made Western or made English. And epiphany is one of those because the Koine Greek word, the word that actually would have fallen from the lips of Jesus was epiphania. So you can hear epiphania, epiphany. And epiphania is a complex word, but essentially 95% of the time when it fell from the lips of a first century Galilean, the word meant to appear. Or maybe even more specifically, it meant to manifest. Epiphany in, in the noun cognate was a manifestation. So when there was a manifestation of something, that was an epiphania. The verb cognate of that was to manifest, obviously. Um, it was used in classic literature often as the enemy appearing on the horizon in the open field. So you're looking 
And, and all of a sudden you begin to see against the straight horizon a bump. And that was an epiphania of the enemy. The same with the sun. When the first little curve of the sun crested above the horizon, that was the epiphany. That was the epiphania. Um, it also was used as the appearance of God to a human. And from that, you can hear the words epiphania, phanos is light, um, epiphania, theophany. You've heard of theophany. So when people have visitations from God distinctly, especially in scripture, in classic literature, when God appeared, that was a theophany, an epiphany of God. It's also used in the New Testament just for basic things like the light of the stars that shine down on us. Um, often it was used as the epiphany of grace or kindness of love. When love or kindness showed up in a particular situation, that was an epiphany. In the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, several times the word is used referring to Christ's first appearance. And then most specifically, it's referring to what the Apostle Paul and others really believed was going to happen in the first century in their lifetime. There was no doubt the early church, one of its greatest struggles was the death of believers. Um, the church at Thessalonica was so moved when it was established by Paul's words of the nearness of the coming of Jesus, the entrance of Jesus back into the world, that they wrote a letter to him weeks after he departed from them and said, wait a minute, sister so-and-so has died. We thought Jesus was coming before she died. And Paul had to write a letter and say, hey, don't worry about those who are dead. They're going to rise first and then those of us that are alive or remain are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds. That scripture really did not begin to get focused on in terms of a rapture idea probably till the middle of the 18th century with Darby's dispensationalism. So the church held that scripture for 18 centuries, never developed the doctrine of a rapture. We've been wrestling with these texts forever trying to figure out what they mean. Through the centuries, the church has employed to celebrate the season of Epiphany three particular texts. And I like all three of the texts. I mean, if you were in a high church today, like a Lutheran or Methodist or Episcopal or Presbyterian or Catholic, where a lot of you come from, you would be celebrating in your lectionary one of these three texts. The first one was the visit of the Eastern wise men. You remember the Magi? To the baby Jesus with their gold and their frankincense and their myrrh. Why to celebrate the appearance, the manifestation of Jesus? Now, again, you say, well, isn't that Christmas? No, no, no. Christmas, and we're going to come back to this. Christmas, Christmas is the celebration of the presence of Jesus. Epiphany is the celebration of the appearance and manifestation of Jesus. And there is a nuanced difference. One says Christ is here. The other says Christ is manifest. And there is a difference. The Eastern wise men experienced the appearance and the manifestation of the Christ because of their eyes, because of their heart, because of what they were looking for. It's a very interesting story. Jesus is born and Herod, the king of the land, Palestinian land, Herod is so concerned that he's heard that a true king has been born that he sends people looking for him. And they can't find him. He calls for the religious scholars of Judaism to come. And they put their finger on Micah 5 and 2. Bethlehem Ephrathah. The least of these. That is where he will be born. 
And yet, at the birth of Jesus, we find not one priest, not one Levite, not one scholar, but those who actually came and experienced the manifestation of Christ were men, not three men. We always say the three wise men because there was gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and we assume that. But they were just wise. They were um, Zoroastrian priests, most likely, from the Middle East. And for those of us who have an inclusive bent toward Christianity or any religion, we like this text, um, DeMarco, because it reminds us that the people who were supposed to see Jesus because they had the book didn't, and people from another religion experienced Jesus and strangely didn't even end up converting to the religion of Jesus. They simply celebrated him and went home. It's also interesting that these Zoroastrian priests who came to celebrate the presence of Jesus in the world, these were the people that probably had great influence on us five centuries earlier when we, as Jewish people, took a, a semi-polytheistic uh, view of the world with no sense of an afterlife into captivity in Mesopotamia, uh, Iraq now, Persia, Babylon, Assyria then, we assimilated with those people, hung our harps on a willow tree and left our land and while there we cross-pollinated religiously and philosophically from them and it's only after we were, were them that we came home and began to write distinctly as monotheist as people who believed in a dualistic universe with a devil and actually an afterlife, a refined afterlife with a judgment. Where did we get that? It wasn't at home studying our book. It was in a different land, feeling lost because we weren't in our temple and yet learning far more spiritually than we could have ever assumed because we cross-pollinated and did what all of us should do, and that is, Heidi, actually share our faith. Share our faith means ram what we believe down people's throats. That's the way I grew up. But share our faith means they get to put their faith on the table and I get to put mine, and we share. And Zoroastrianism had a deep influence on Judaism, which then birthed what we know as Christianity. These were the priests, not Jewish priests. This just bothers the heck out of some of us. Not Jewish priests, but from another religion. They came and they experienced the manifestation of Christ. Now, the church hasn't captured the full inclusivity of that idea, but the church has at least celebrated and said that was a portent of the inclusion of Gentiles to the kingdom and to Christianity later. Uh, the second text that we celebrate Epiphany with is the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist in the Jordan. Uh, Jesus lived his childhood. He had that one kind of incredible experience when he was 12 years old where he stupefied the religious leaders in the temple. You remember? His mom and dad had gone up to the temple. It's a great story. Think about this. His mom and dad had gone up to the temple to celebrate the Passover. And while they were there celebrating the Passover, they got so carried away with what a wonderful time it was as they left to go back to their home. They were so caught up in the reflections of what a wonderful Passover they had just experienced that the Bible said they traveled a day's journey before they realized that they had left Jesus at Target. Anybody ever done that? <laughs> you get that call from school. Uh, Mr. Mitchell, Nina's here in the principal's office. The school buses are all gone. And she said you were supposed to pick her up. 
has anybody ever, no, I won't ask that. There may be a DCS worker here in the room. We, we don't want to put ourselves in harm's way. Kelly, they traveled a day's journey and they were reflecting on how great church had just been. And she looks over and says, um, hey, where, have you seen the boy? And Joseph said what every good husband would say. I thought you had him. I thought you were supposed to have him. Wasn't my day to babysit. Um, and they circled back. They realized they had left him. You remember where they left him? Anybody remember where they left him? In the temple. Now that's, that's a... I don't want to make too much out of this, Steve, but it's pretty interesting. For those that have been in church for years, Steve and Barbara grew up on the mission field. It's one of those great devotionals um, where we reflect on the reality that one of the easiest places to lose Jesus is in the temple. It's one of the easiest places to lose him. At the Passover... You know, he becomes the Passover lamb. Now, that's amazing. Don, they lost the Passover lamb celebrating the Passover. Boy, there's a, there's a warning for us that have been around the church for a long time. Beauty is that when they went back, they found Jesus in the temple. And I, as a lover of church and community, I never have been one of those folk that have just wanted to lament and lick the wounds of how we've been hurt in the church. You know, for crying out loud, go get in the Rotary Club. Be with them three years. They'll hurt you too. Get in the Clovercroft PTA. Get where there's people. We're going to hurt one another. You know, this wound licking of how bad the church has been, I, just get in a group of people. We're going to get on one another's nerves eventually. And we're going to have to press through that and find forbearance and a way to get through. That's, that's in every relationship. The beauty is that they found him exactly where they left him, which was in the temple. So it's true. One of the easiest places to lose Jesus is in the temple. One of the easiest places to find Jesus is in the temple. And so that's one of the texts. Um, the appearance of Jesus uh, in the temple. And... And then that finally just goes dark and you don't know anything about Jesus between 12 and 30 and then you have this next experience where Jesus is baptized and the early church says we experience the Trinity there because you've got the Son, you've got the Holy Spirit floating like a dove and the Father speaks from heaven and says this is my beloved Son. And for 30 years the church said Jesus was present but Jesus was not manifest. For 30 years Jesus was there but there was no strong manifestation of the Christ. And so this was the moment when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb. And Jesus left the carpenter shop and began walking on water. The final text that we use to celebrate Epiphany is the miracle uh, at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. The miracle where uh, Jewish weddings at that time were these three-day spectacles of celebration and at the end of the second day and the beginning of the third day the wedding normally happened and then there was an after party so you had 48 hours of pre-party a wedding and 24 hours of great celebration three-day experience and at the end of the second day they were just about to have the marriage and ramp up and this group of people had already expended all of the wine 
This was a very problematic text for teetotalers like me from the little Pentecostal world because it had the whole wine thing in it. But once we settled that in the Greek this was indeed non-alcoholic wine, we were able to come back to this text. And it's there. If you check the Greek out, there, this, is, this is total Welch's. It's where Welch's actually began as a company. Um, you know, we always say the Catholics believe in transubstantiation, which is the miracle of the wine literally becomes the blood of Jesus. And Orthodox and high Protestants believe in consubstantiation, where the, the, the wine doesn't literally become technically, chemically blood, but it spiritually becomes a miracle. It becomes the blood of Jesus in a, a sacramental sense. And we always said, us Pentecostal Baptist Church of Christ, we believe that the real miracle was that... Uh, Jesus would touch the wine and turn it back into grape juice so none of us would be sinners at the Lord's Supper. But at the end of the second day, they came to Jesus' mother and said, the wine's all gone. And wine, in Scripture, wine is almost always connected with celebration. Not just your palate, and what you like with your spaghetti. Wine is almost always connected with celebration because it can take the edge off. In the last 2,000 years, we've learned that it cannot just take the edge off and help a celebration. It can also destroy a life if it's out of control. We've learned some things in the last 2,000 years. So sometime I end up more liberal than where they were in the text, and sometimes we end up more conservative than where they were on the text. But apart from the wine thing, which was always our issue there, Jesus' mother said, you know, whatever he tells you to do, you do. And they brought him these water pots. What a story. They bring him these water pots. And Jesus touches the water and turns it into wine. And every time I say that, I remember my good friend Ted Hewitt, who plays the guitar up here for years. Ted, and I've mentioned this before, Ted wrote one of the best songs that have been written in this town in the last quarter century. From an alcoholic's perspective, uh, Ted wrote a song called, Lord, Would You Please Turn the Wine Back Into Water? The miracle of water into wine, and another miracle for some of wine back into water. And the wine flowed, and when the people drank the wine, they said, man, this is the best wine. This is the best wine. This is even better than the wine that flowed at the first. Those are the three texts. Obviously, the essence of the feast is the same, no matter which text. The essence is the appearance of God to the world through Christ. The beauty of Christianity's chief distinctive, and that is the incarnation. God in flesh. The celebration begun by Advent, the celebration that makes its way through the manger and the nativity, extends to the season of Epiphany. In Epiphany, the inactive baby becomes an active man, a living presence, even bigger than Jesus, that presence called the Christ erupts onto the scene. Epiphany, in the growing nature of the church, and the growing mindset of the church as we continue to celebrate the idea of God's appearance in the world. 
We realize that Epiphany is more than a celebration of something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's more than the celebration of the eruption onto the scene, miraculously, of Jesus with the turning of water into wine, or the baptism and the Father's voice, or the miracles of Christ. Epiphany is more than something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's more than a doctrine that we hold. And it's more than the expectation of some future appearing of Jesus. It's far more than that. Epiphany is part of our present life. Epiphany is more than a light bulb that goes on over my head. It's more than a eureka moment of thought. Epiphany, epiphany is realizing how the universe actually works and who the Christ actually is. Epiphany is part of our present life. Epiphany is the truth of Jesus Christ in flesh now here. And again, by truth, I don't mean cold, memorized doctrines. I mean the truth that God is telling us by manifesting in the flesh or the human form of Jesus. I personally, as a progressive, don't see the first century church fully, fully grasping or explaining or exhausting the truth of Jesus. It's too big for that. I do not see the early church as the archetype or the final stator of doctrine constitution. I see the early church as the infant who just began to wrestle and grasp. As the text of 1 John said, we touched him, we tasted him, we saw him. There was no way in a decade or a century or a book to wrap our minds fully around what happened when God came in the flesh of Jesus. For 2,000 years, we have been reflecting on the question, what did this mean? What did this baptism, what did this precocious 12-year-old, what did water into wine, what did all of this mean? God appeared. God appears. And between the appearances, the question that is begged is, where is God when God is not appearing? Where is God when Jesus, who has appeared, floats through the air into the heavens and disappears? Where is God betwixt and between the appearances of God? This is the stuff of Christmas and Epiphany. This is the stuff that we're called to work out. In Colossians 1, Paul reflecting on the appearance of God in the person of Jesus. Paul said, you know what he was? Christ was the visible image of the invisible God. That, that is a beautiful statement that, that we need to focus fully, fully on, I mean the entirety of the text. Because immediately when Paul says he is the visible image, we get stuck on Jesus and the visibly imaged God but Paul admits something there that I think all of us can admit to if, if we'll just be honest. And that is God is incredibly and often invisible. Paul said the beauty, the good news is that there is a visible image of God. But the reality is this visible image is of the invisible God. And, and the experience of God as invisible is not always pleasant. The experience of God as inaudible is not always easy. 
the experience of God as invisible and inaudible often gets almost acquainted with not there at all. I can't tell you in 32 years of ministry how many times I have heard people in a desperate hour say, I just need to hear something. I just need to see something. I just, I just got to sink my teeth into something. Job said, you know, I, I went forward, I went backwards, I went east, I went west, I went up, I went down. Nothing. Nothing. And you know, I don't want to believe it, but, but who would be invisible and inaudible who loves me in my hour of greatest need? Job said, I could not find God. And at one point, Job said, listen to this, Job prophesied and said, oh, and he didn't know it was a prophecy. Sometime lament is a prophecy. Don't just listen to your joy, listen to your sorrow. Sometimes the word of the Lord comes through that. Job said, oh, that God were a man, that God might know what I'm going through. Wow. Hmm. Paul said Christ, I'll tell you what Christ is. Christ isn't simply the presence of God. Christ is more than that. We don't need Christ for the presence of God because if God is everywhere in us and through us, then why do we need Christ? Christ is not the presence of God. Christ is the appearance of God. Christ is the visible image, reflection of the invisible God. And Jesus was always coming and going. He came in this incredible way. I mean, the manger, the shepherds, the magi, the, it's really an incredible deal. This 12-year-old boy that just blows them away. This 30-year-old whose baptism is different than everybody else's and has voices and doves and walks on water and raises the dead and speaks like nobody had ever spoken. But in the middle of all of that, he began talking about how he needed to go away and the disciples rebuked him on every hand and yet with all of the rebukes, he just told them, you know what, as I have come, I've got to go. And, and I've told you I've got to go and it has broken your heart because nobody likes the appearance or the manifestation or the sense of God. Nobody likes that to go away. There, there are seasons of life where the presence of God seems so abiding and so understood even without, even without it manifest. It's just like the understood word at the beginning of a sentence. It's just understood and it's there. And there are seasons of life where the skids of our soul are just greased and they are easy and the presence of God is assumed and understood. The invisible God is trusted. And then there are seasons of our life that are different than that. Dark nights of the soul, St. John of the Cross called them. Jesus said, I, I am doing you a favor by going away. It's made you sad that I've told you that I'm, I'm going to go away, but it's really for your good that I'm going to go away. And then he went away in the worst possible way. Uh, it's, it's, um, 
It's one thing for the... How do I say this? It's one thing for the sense of God, the sense of divine presence, the sense of God's manifest presence in your life. It's, it's one thing for that to go away just kind of quietly, subdued, slip out, you know, seamlessly, nicely. And, but often the appearance of God in your life goes out harshly. It goes out through crucifixions. Um, sometime the appearance of God, which is what Jesus was, the epiphany, the manifestation, the visible image of the invisible God, sometimes it just doesn't slide out slowly. Sometimes it slides out through bankruptcies and divorces and um, cancer diagnoses. and It, 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 it just doesn't go nice. It, it goes in a crucified, ugly, bloody form. Uh, and that's not the way... We like that to go, but he goes, and, and the Bible said immediately they all just went back to their jobs. They just went back to their nets. They, they realized they had hooked their wagon to the wrong thing, and it was all a lie. And so now in this invisible state, the appearance of God gone, they, they question the whole deal. And then all of a sudden, he shows back up. Luke 24 says a couple of them were walking down the road lamenting the fact that Jesus was gone. Jesus had disappeared. And about that time, Jesus walks up between them. It's an incredible story. He walks up between them. They're on the road to Emmaus, going back to their life. And they're talking to one another about how Jesus is gone. And as they're going back to their life, here comes Jesus, walks up between them, and they don't even recognize that it's Jesus. So this is not an epiphany. The presence of God is always there. Whether Jesus is there or not, Jesus is even there now. But it's not an epiphany because epiphanies aren't dependent upon God coming and going. See? Epiphanies aren't dependent upon Jesus coming and going. No, no, no. Epiphanies are often dependent upon our eyes. And the reality is their eyes were so filled with despair and sadness that when Jesus came, they couldn't even see him. Reminds me of when he was walking on the water and they looked out because they thought their boat was sinking and they thought Jesus was either a demon or a ghost. The exact opposite of who he was. So much of it, so much of epiphany, so much of phonos, our light intake, has to do with our eyes, not just physically but spiritually. That's why in Revelation 3, Jesus spoke to the church at Ephesus who had been so long time with Jesus and there was no mortal sin in the Ephesian church. It was the one of the seven churches that was kind of clean and sterile and nice, kind of like the parents leaving the Passover and, you know, good moral people. They had just lost Jesus. And to the Ephesian church, he said, you are blind and poor and naked and don't even know it, but I counsel you to buy of me, to take from me eye salve for your eyes. So that you might see again. Interesting. Ephesus was a, a, a medicinal capital of the world at that time. It was, a, it was a place surrounded by deserts. And travelers coming through there often their eyes were burned by the sun and the blistering pelting sand. And it was in Ephesus in the century before Christ that doctors, uh, early ophthalmologists had developed an eye salve for the burned eyes of travelers. So they could be cleared and see. I counsel you to buy of me eye salve that you might see. And 
comes back and he appears and he walks with them. He even says, why are you guys so sad? The scripture said that the guy was going to get crucified and he's talking about himself. And they get to the end of the road and they say, hey, buddy, why don't you come into the house? He goes into the house with them. It's dangerous out there. It's dark. And it's, a, it's a dangerous, treacherous road. And Jesus sits down at the table with them and they're still talking about how Jesus is gone. And then all of a sudden, Jesus takes a piece of bread from the table, Barbara, and breaks it. And when they see those hands break the bread, you just never know how appearances, epiphanies of God work. Just in the most benign, subtle way. I mean, he had been with them all day long talking scripture and they didn't see him. And then he takes a piece of bread and breaks it. And something about the way he broke the bread reminded them. Because a few nights before, he had taken a piece of bread and broken it. And the hands on the bread. Now, here's the, here's the kicker. He breaks the bread and their eyes are opened. That's epiphany. Their eyes are open and they realize it's him. Shannon, here's the crazy part. I don't know how all this works, but it sure Seems very similar to how I've experienced God and, and Jesus. And as soon as he broke the bread and they recognized it was him, they lit up. And as they went for him, you remember what the Bible says happened? He disappeared. And somehow, you know, either Jesus is playing cat and mouse and being cruel with them, or Jesus is teaching them something about the way life works. And something tells me that the disappearances are just as important as the appearances. And, and the way we handle the disappearances are just as important as the appearances. Because he disappeared and their hearts were broken. But like the light that's turned on in a dark hall, when it goes off, there still is imprinted in your mind the memory of what you saw. And, and sometimes that is spiritual walking. Sometimes the lights are all on and sometimes the lights just go off. Sometimes the light bulb is crucified for whatever reason. And, and I don't know why it happens or how it happens. I just know that sometimes all the lights are on and the walk is so plain and so clear. And then for no reason, the lights go out. But you keep walking because your mind is imprinted even in the darkness with a memory of what you saw when you were in the light. And the good news of Jesus is that what he's trying to teach us in this rhythm of appearances and disappearances. Later, they get back to a group of people and they say, hey, we just saw him. And the guy's like, well, where is he? We don't know. He disappeared. And about that time as they were talking, he appears. And he opens the text and he breaks bread again with them. And then he disappears again. And he tells them, go out to a mountain and, and I'll meet you back there again. And they go out to a mountain and when they saw him, it's called you know, uh, Mount, uh, the Mount of Ascension. And they saw him and the Bible says they began worshiping him because that's what we do with Jesus. They, they just worshiped him. And as they were worshiping him, he begins floating up into the heavens. And they're like, where are you going? And as he floats into the heavens, he finally disappears again. See, if you don't understand what's happening here, thank God for people like Richard Rohr who have 
helped us with this. This is not a story for us to memorize of a historical event 2,000 years ago. This is the story of our life. This is the way it works with us in Jesus. And as he's floating through the air, they're ready to make a statue, build a church, and worship more. And the angel shows up and says, why are you standing here gazing? Go to Jerusalem. You're going to be filled with the same spirit that just made him float through the air. Appearances. We live. I have lived 40, almost 49 years now in the Christian church. Always as a spiritual traveler before I even understood the premise of Christianity. We live with God somewhere between presence and manifestation. We live with God in that domain that distinguishes between presence and manifestation. Manifestations and appearances like the presence of Jesus on the earth. Manifestations and appearances are not God showing up and saying, I have finally arrived. But manifestations and appearances are God saying, I have always been here. And what you are seeing right now is not an interlude of presence. What you are seeing right now is not this smattering of presence that God gives us like crumbs at the feet of the king. But when the Christ shows up in our life, the Christ is not saying, worship me now as God who has come. The Christ is saying, I am simply the visible image of what has always been true. God has always been with us. Emmanuel does not mean God has shown up. Emmanuel means God has always been with us. And the presence of Jesus was something much like the experiences that we have with God. And I have had, in the course of my life, I suppose if I begin to write them down, I have had six or eight experiences that have been Christ moments for me. They have been incarnational moments where I have stepped back and say, said to myself, Mary, I'm not going to tell anybody about this because I'm not even going to subject it to scrutiny. It is such a holy moment for me. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that in the depths of my doubt and existential intellectual despair at times God literally just walked in and touched me and blew my mind uh, stories this, this is a story of epiphany I was preaching one time at Christ Church as a young preacher and I was preaching a sermon series called The Kiss Still Works. And there's a lot of background to the story, but um, it's a beautiful story. Uh, a surgeon, uh, Richard Seltzer, I believe is his name, wrote a book called Mortal Lessons. And in the book, he talked about the surgery he performed on a young woman in her late 20s. And he had to remove a tumor from her face. And he did his absolute best to avoid the nerve but he couldn't avoid the nerve and save her life. And so, Brian, the nerve was severed. And so when she woke up out of the surgery, 28-year-old, young, beautiful woman, the first thing she did 
before she even asked if the cancer was gone, was she touched her face. And her face, like a stroke-stricken person, was permanently marred now. And Seltzer said he watched as she took a mirror and she looked at her face and she wept. And he said, but standing there beside her was her husband. Man, this is a great story. And her husband reached down and said, I think it's kind of cute, talking about the now slurring of her face, the distortion of her face. And Seltzer said, there I stood in the presence of God as I watched a young man literally twist his face to kiss hers. And as I watched him contour his lips to her pain, he said, I heard him whisper, see, baby, the kiss still works. And so I was preaching that series. I ought to preach it here sometime. I ought to pull that one out. And just talking about how life contorts us, but God is ever and again coming into our life and saying, it still works. I can shape myself to whatever circumstance that you have. The presence of God always, but there are times in the darkness and the invisibility that we need an epiphania. We need an epiphany. We need something to erupt into our life. But the problem is with people like me that come from a Pentecostal background, we get so addicted to the epiphany we forget the presence, see. And we get addicted to needing the high, and it, it, it's got to always... It's got to always be the anniversary moment. It's got to always be the perfect candlelit moment or God's not there. That's why the disappearance is happening because epiphanies are not presents. Epiphanies are reminders of a continuing presence. Anniversaries aren't when we love one another. They're reminders that we're always loving one another. And that's why we celebrate epiphany. Because epiphanies are not just about the appearance, they're about the disappearance. Because the disappearance is not leaving you without God. The disappearance is leaving you with the reminder that God is always here, see. But periodically in the course of your life, if you will leave your heart's door ajar, the wind will blow where it listeth and you will hear the sound thereof, but you will not be able to tell from whence it cometh or goeth, because so is everyone born of the Spirit. And as I was preaching that series, over to my right, there was a, a young lady. And I noticed her for whatever reason. There was a big crowd, a couple thousand people in that room. But I kept noticing her stirring. She was just moving uncomfortably. And I remember even watching her get up. And I knew she wasn't like going to the restroom or checking on a kid because she had her purse and a bag and a coat. And she was heading out and then she came and sat back down. It was, almost, it was obtrusive almost. I didn't think much about it, but uh, a month later, I got a letter in the mail, and it was one of those letters came in a little package, handwritten, and there was a bump. You could tell there was a bump in there, and when I opened the letter out, I'll tell you what the bump was, but as I opened the letter up, she began to tell me her life story, familial abuse, sexual abuse, the worst of abuses, multiple marriages, broken relationships, had lost her children just a very broken life and that morning she had crawled out of bed stumbled to church for the first time I think it was maybe May at this point she had not been to church since February but she just felt like coming that day and I was telling her God was telling her that the kiss still worked 
And she said, I could not believe it. I knew that I was too contorted, too broken, and even the lips of God could not meet mine. And she said, as you were talking about the kiss to work, she said, I, I, I wanted to leave. I got up. I, I sat back down. And she said, I grabbed my Bible. And as I grabbed my Bible, she said, I just did that thing that Christians say they can do sometime. And she said, I just opened it up. And she said, when I opened it up, I looked down. And I was in this book called Song of Solomon. And the first thing I saw in the whole book, just opened up. She said, you're talking about the kiss. And I saw he kisses me with the kisses of his mouth. And she said, as I read that, she said, I slumped and I put my hand on the Bible. And she said, I felt something hit my leg. And she said, I looked down and she said, there was this little candy heart. And she said, when I picked it up, I realized that it had been stuck to the pages of the Bible. It was stuck here. And she said, this Bible, I had left at church back in February. And as I walked in this morning, I thought to myself, I want to see if they have my Bible in the lost and found. She went to our lost and found there. And her Bible had been there since the Sunday after February 14th, last time she was there. And her Bible had a little candy heart stuck to it because in our Sunday school classes, we had given out those little candy hearts that come in the cardboard boxes, you know, that have the little messages on them. And her daughter evidently had had this one, didn't like it, had stuck it in her mouth and licked with saliva. It got sticky and somehow in the hubbub, it got stuck to the Bible. And that Bible set in our lost and found for almost three months with that little candy heart stuck. And at the moment that a preacher's preaching about the kiss still works and this young woman can't believe it, she opens her Bible to Song of Solomon, reads the kiss still works. It detaches the candy, falls in her lap. And when she picks the little piece of candy up, the little piece of candy in red letters on pink shape said, kiss me. And she took that little heart, one of the treasures of my ministry, and scotch-taped it to that handwritten letter she sent me. That's epiphany. And I wish I could tell you one's going to happen to you today. I've had six or eight happen to me. One happened just the other day out here on this porch. <laughs> and I needed it. I won't tell you that one. You think I'm crazy. But I know I'm not. Because the appearances and disappearances, it all sounds crazy. But the season of epiphany is the reminder that when God shows up and when God disappears, it has nothing to do with whether God is there. God is always there. Sometime epiphanies just underscore that. And they often come at just the right moment in our life. And I can't tell you whether it will be the clacking of two branches in a tree or a candy heart that falls in your lap against one in three trillion probabilities. I can't tell you when it will happen. But we are a people of epiphany. And Christ is far more than a doctrine and the second person in the Trinity. Christ is the conscious an abiding presence and often manifestation of God 
in the earth to those God loves. Can you say amen? Let's bow our heads and let's spend a moment of reflection before we go. God, the sweetest Christ, for my brothers and sisters, as we head into this new year, we have ended a year with packages and gifts and weight gain, hearts filled with love and bellies filled with food and a manger filled with a baby, a baby who fills the universe. Thank you for the presence of God in this earth, in our lives. But as we begin this year, we often need substance. We need visible, we need audible, we need strength, we need reminders. This is why for 2,000 years we take cups of wine and pieces of bread. This is why we take our babies and our elderly to water, two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen, and they're buried with Christ in baptism. We are a people of epiphany. And as we enter this new year with resolutions in tow, we spend a moment now, all of us, the calloused <laughs> and the tender, the scared and the vibrant, those that have been with you a long time and those that have been with you a short time, those that are finding Jesus in the temple and those that are losing Jesus in the temple. We spend a moment as a congregation and we crack the door of our heart open. We are open to these certain uncertain moments, these whispers from the wings of the stage. Drop a heart that says kiss me into our lives. Come to us, sweet Christ. And until you do, may we live off the stories that have lit our dark path. If the light has gone out, may we live off spiritual memory of appearances past. May we listen to one another. May we share our stories and our strength with one another. Sweet Christ of Epiphany, you are celebrated in this place today. And dear presence of God, we are embraced, we are enfolded. And even if we're not enraptured, we trust. We pray all of this in the sweet name of Christ, in the name of the one called Emmanuel Jesus. Meet us today in our lives, we pray. And God's people said, Amen. The season of epiphany. Embrace it. Keep your heart open. <laughs>